the issues of ethics and privacy are, as we know, absolutely crucial as technologies are evolving and developing. And a key element of the ADAPT Center's sort of, uh, I suppose, agenda or mission is that we discuss and debate ethics and privacy issues as the technology is being designed and developed, as well as post the development. And so um, we've been very lucky, I think, over the last number of years to have very many uh, excellent speakers and visitors coming to Trinity to help us think through some of those ethical issues, not only for those of us who are involved in the philosophical aspects, but also for those who are very much in the hands-on design of the technologies. So I'm going to hand over to my colleague Vessel, who's going to introduce our speaker. Um, so Quinn, at the moment, is a Rutgers, uh, Rutgers Digital Studies Fellow, and um, he has uh, also experience in industry, so he worked for IBM for five years. Uh, and um, after that, um, did his research at the University of Toronto. Um, I got to know him because there was a. I mean, sometimes you find things on the internet because and, and they, they kind of totally uh, capture your your uh, all your attention. And I found one of your his, his talks uh, uh, during one of the, the, the a conference called Money Lab, um, and um, it, it was also about uh, uh, cryptography, cryptocurrencies, and um, looking into the history, the social side, the um, also the philosophical side of, of this phenomenon, um, which is incredibly interesting. So I hope that um, today will enlighten you as well in that, in that respect. Um, and I won't say too much more and give the floor to uh, so Go ahead. Thank you. Um, and so my, and just to kind of contextualize where I'm going to go with the, my sort of little talk today, it's uh, it's still something, it's, it's a kind of a larger project I've been working on, um, but it's also sort of new um, area I'm starting to start to explore. So I've worked with blockchain stuff for a good number of years now, um, and so that's something I'm, I'm quite familiar with in my, um, uh, my actually just recently completed PhDs on cryptography, some of the social and philosophical aspects of that. So it's a, it's a place I'm starting to kind of uh, head towards. So. Just as to kind of contextualize where it is in my kind of larger project. So, <clears throat> despite suggestions otherwise, uh, Bitcoin and its related blockchain systems don't actually provide particularly good privacy. And this is, uh, you know, quite plainly, this is because Bitcoin doesn't work anonymously. And it's it's a pretty simple point if you're familiar with blockchain technologies and Bitcoin. Um, you know, this is not news, but it is worth reiterating. So instead. Bitcoin works as a pseudonymous system. And then you have one or more identities that are kind of loosely coupled to your, your, your real identity. <clears throat> so how that works is, should your Bitcoin wallet become relinked to your real identity, um, all your prior and future transactions for that identity will be exposed. And this is a consequence, and this is, I think, an interesting property of blockchains, a consequence of the structure of the blockchain technology, which lies underneath Bitcoin. <clears throat> Um, and I think this affects all the kind of conceptually related blockchain tech, uh, systems. And this is because, in the simplest sense, a blockchain is nothing more than a public and decentralized ledger in, in, in which all the participants have basically full access to its contents. So, 
any individual that has access to the ledger uh, can see all of the other transactions. And that means, consequently, if a single transaction is exposed in the sense of revealing personally identifiable information lying behind a, a Bitcoin address, which is a kind of a string of digits called a, a hash, cryptographic hash, there's this real possibility that you can relink all of your transactions to your personally identifiable information, <coughs> um, which gets associated with this sort of now known wallet, right? And this can happen if, if perhaps a, uh, if you transacted with a, a business and they leaked your identity, right? And they, re, they re did this relinking. However, this actually doesn't really happen in the real world. That's the kind of interesting thing about this. It's despite this um, uh, publicly, uh, public and fully traceable properties of the blockchain as, as this large ledger, privacy issues don't tend to occur with any significant frequency. And there's a few kind of reasons for this. For one, it's basically considered just good wallet hygiene to sort of cycle through your addresses, so you have many um, sort of uh, digital identities. <clears throat> and that ensures that you can't trace uh, your single identity through the ledger. And this often happens automatically when you use services. <clears throat> and moreover, for those that are sort of a little more paranoid about the privacy, um, there are a number of uh, mixing services you can use to further obfuscate your uh, transaction history. Um, there's turnkey solutions uh, that do this. And uh, then there's, of course, now emerging uh, a number of um, alternative blockchain systems, such as uh, Zcash, which is built to be extremely privacy protective. So in reality, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain systems um, are actually strongly privacy protective. Um, but it's because of this interesting decentralized ledger system um, and the cryptography involved with it that I see them as kind of these, uh, as a potentially uh, interesting candidate for uh, my discussion of privacy. So today I'm, I'm going to talk about online privacy and some of the issues I see arising <clears throat> and introduce a few points where I think blockchain technologies might fit into this discussion. So my goal and my interest here um, is not actually to uncover a technology that guarantees privacy. Um, or to even discuss some maximally private kind of technology. And, uh, <clears throat> and there are many of these, such as, as I mentioned, Z Zcash. Um, there's you know, Signal for instant uh, messaging, PGP for, for email, and so on. <clears throat> Rather, I'm interested in the ways that we can understand a, a much more contextually specific kind of online privacy. In fact, and, and this is, gets somewhat controversial, I think we should uh, look to build systems that do not default to um, absolute or maximal privacy, or even perhaps in some con in some settings, in some particular context, don't even permit really, really strong forms of privacy at all. Now, of course, this doesn't fit into the typical narrative surrounding cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies, um, which were basically born out of uh, a real potent crypto libertarian sense of values, um, and they valorize privacy, uh, especially privacy from government intrusion above all else. <coughs> So before I move on to discuss the kind of specific privacy situation, I want to just briefly pause on this moment and offer not so much an argument for my normative claims about privacy, but uh, to offer kind of a justification um, for the need to open the discussion of privacy and uh, uh, call to change the narrative <clears throat> with the uh, goal of leading to what I believe is actually more productive ends. So just to back up, 
Last year in the Christian Science Monitor, I wrote about the uh, need to change our narrative about privacy in the context of the San Bernardino uh, terrorist iPhone case. And this, this was called uh, Apple versus FBI in the media. <clears throat> and if you recall, this is a situation where there was an iPhone um, potentially containing relevant information uh, for law enforcement, but it was protected with strong full disk encryption. And so specifically, I discussed how we need to change our narrative around default encryption in forms of absolute privacy. And that article came to basically two conclusions. First, we should recognize that privacy and security have historically been understood as a trade-off amidst uh, efforts to sustain a peaceful society in, in a dangerous world. Our countries have spies, population uh, statisticians, emergency power laws, capable, uh, police capable of search and seizure. And I think only fringe elements would argue for dismantling all of these mechanisms um, that help assure uh, social contract and uh, good behavior. <clears throat> but when it comes to digital communications, and when it comes to the same trade-offs in cyberspace, we tend to retreat to uh, in what I believe is a, actually just a fantasy world. So in this regard, let's just sort of consider the what I think is actually fairly deeply problematic, the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. What it supposes that it is possible, and in fact desirable, to institute an online world free from uh, the rights, duties, and consequences of the, the real world, um, or to put a, a finer point on it, the, the impact social world. So, and meanwhile, we have organizations like in, 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 the, in North America, uh, where I'm from, uh, the EFF, unflinchingly promoting uh, encryption technology, often at the expense of other more democratic solutions, such as legal or state interventions. And I, in fact, see this as a kind of a retrograde view that um, if you consider a world in which consequences do matter, I think this looks at best like extreme callousness and a, a real sense of hubris um, with respect to these actually significant issues. <clears throat> and at worst, looks like uh, some, you know, a lot like the, basically the American uh, National Rifle Association's unflinching defense of handguns amidst so much, tech, uh, so much violence. And so second, in a kind of related way, we should recognize the, that the internet may give the appearance of a public sphere, but is also, and I think more importantly, an infrastructure. It's an infrastructure created by and for governments, <coughs> subsequently transferred to the private sector, and maintained by uh, uh, engineering task forces and other technocratic groups. So the notion that there's this sort of cyberspace or clouds, I think is quite unrealistic. In fact, <clears throat> I argue that online rights are basically an illusion that mask marketing decisions often. The internet's routers, protocols, fiber optic cables, and platforms are in fact all owned, and we basically need to wake up to the fact that we're not really in, in that deep sense all that free. So I'm not suggesting that we erode privacy. Far from it. In fact, my claim, just to underline it, is actually a negative one. <clears throat> I think we should question the existence and the desire for totalizing online encryption um, and so that's not that we should have no privacy or even a significantly diminished sense of privacy in comparison to offline contexts. However, what I've observed is that we do, we do not yet possess the ability to have a, a kind of uh, appropriately contextual discussion about privacy. So when I published my Christian Science Monitor that I just mentioned, uh, Christian Science Monitor article that I just mentioned, it was in fact Instantly, I was in fact instantly attacked by EFF attorneys who outright dismissed any discussion of balance 
and instead saw the world only in terms of black and white. <coughs> Similarly, we have people such as Edward Snowden, who previously claimed that uh, he remembers a time when the internet, uh, that he remembers what the internet was like before it was being watched. But in fact, this was never true. Uh, I've done a fair bit of uh, research on the history of uh, online cryptography, <coughs> and the internet basically started life as, a, as the ARPANET, which was a military research tool and included surveillance capabilities as a central feature of its architecture. And then so, for instance, the central switches of many of the internetworks were run by the US uh, NSA, CIA, and the Defense Intelligence uh, Agency. So this doesn't mean uh, that we should slide into political apathy and merely accept um, what the private and state actors are selling. But I don't think we should expect a declaration of independence of cyberspace either. So resisting this illusion means understanding how social, economic, and state actors actively constitute communications infrastructure. So I think reframing the, the cryptography and privacy debate would mean thinking about privacy not as a fundamental property of some kind of ethereal uh, cyberspace, but rather as an on, ongoing negotiation of built infrastructure and social values. Okay, so let's uh, sort of switch gears a little bit right now and start to contextualize this idea of privacy. Uh, I think fairly unproblematically, privacy is not a natural right, um, although it might be a kind of a democratic or negotiated right. Um, this, I think, can have some issues, but um, it's, uh, so that's one, one viewpoint. Um, rather, I think privacy is a, a historically contingent and emergent property of some specific social context. And in fact, the very idea of demarcating private and public spaces, um, I think basically, from my research, first emerged, first materialized in a, a significant and meaningful way in uh, roughly in the, in the Renaissance, and it was, this was promoted in part by Leon Battista um, Alberti. So Alberti observed that the, uh, on account of the administration of class-specific home accounting that emerged with the transa uh, transition to wealthy uh, Italian, Italian city-states, it became important for a, a specifically male uh, family head to control access to and knowledge about the family's resources. <clears throat> so. Uh, the principal measure to control this knowledge was to actually physically secure uh, the accounting books held at first at locked uh, closets, and then Alberti, on Alberti's recommendation, uh, to separate a wall between the uh, husband's and wife's beds so that the private accounting information can be, uh, in fact, conceptually and architecturally separated. The locked closet um, eventually became a separate study and uh, formed uh, the, the true center of the house. In fact, Alberti's architectural invention created a uniquely male kind of privacy uh, and as a space for arranging the uh, private affairs of the house that only the trusted uh, male associates were granted access to. So out of this historical context, uh, we might, I would argue that we should, attempt to maintain and, and defend a strong sense of privacy. Um, as I do think it appears to be a, uh, essential to a democratic and flourishing life. But let's also recognize that it was created in a specific context and um, is consequently subject to change. And change it has. Uh, with the introduction of computers and massive databases and then network capabilities and data, data and transmission protocols, we now live in a world of uh, you know, 
shockingly frictionless information exchange. And this issue has been well discussed by scholar, uh, scholars uh, in the literature, um, covered by uh, privacy scholars for, for many decades, and more recently, um, <coughs> covered by uh, people studying the digital culture in general. And these accounts discussed in many ways that the unique properties of networked digital computers have negatively impacted privacy. Private information is now transferred in ways that are completely opaque and, um, <coughs> to those that are impacted by it. And, uh, used in ways that few can, um, in fact, understand or predict. The issue, as I see it, is that digital networked computing has introduced a new kind of being and, uh, in fact, so, and sociality, and, and as well as a mode of communication and exchange that is sufficiently dif uh, new and different to constitute uh, basically an, uh, an actual epistemic rupture with the past. So quite frankly, I don't believe that we have uh, an appropriate model for online digital privacy. We do, however, have a significant and well-tuned model for offline privacy. So offline privacy is drenched in these micro-negotiations and social values and norms, and we have this loose and variable, yet I think spectacularly capable intuition about privacy. Basically, our gut instinct drives our feelings about offline privacy. And this gut instinct and basic model for privacy um, <clears throat> has been shown so far to be incapable of, of making sense of the online world. But I'd argue it's actually the only normative uh, model that we have. So for the remainder of, the, the, of my talk, I'll discuss, um, and just as I said before, in kind of still tentative ways, I think we can update and revise the offline model to find some better balance uh, something of a negotiated middle ground between the absolute lack of privacy in, in this kind of laissez-faire online world and between that and a total and absolute and deeply libertarian, somewhat anti-social online world of ubiquitous privacy-protecting encryption. So to get, to get us some way there, I think we can consider um, Helen Nissenbaum's theory of contextual privacy. Nissenbaum's theory has a lot of merit, especially since it was designed specifically to address some of the ways that online digital technologies impinge on privacy. But as she herself admits, it's not a specific normative model of privacy, rather it's a, it's a kind of framework. My goal is to develop this framework towards a normative account that is informed by our intuitions about privacy in the offline world, and that we can make sense of the online world leveraging some of the unique qualities of blockchain technologies, which I <clears throat> uh, identified as, in a, this structural way, offering a, uh, a negotiated sense of privacy. So to get a better sense of the normative properties I'd like to consider, <clears throat> in a simple and admittedly incomplete way, I'll offer this sort of example or, or prototype. Um, so we can consider our intuitions about privacy as we walk down a, a public street. And as Nissenbaum uh, characterizes his behavior, it's interesting that you're, you're, as she says, seen by hundreds, noticed by none. And this common activity of just walking down the street um, is well understood in Western legal traditions. In most Western legal traditions, this activity is not actually, um, is usually considered to be public. That is not 
private is, is, that is not a private activity on account of the lack of expectations of privacy. Generally, the right to privacy is associated with the private. And these strike me as sensible intuitions. <clears throat> but it's limited to places that are private, not public, and therefore it sort of doesn't port over to the online world very easily. On the other hand, cases where we have a strong sense of privacy, such as within our home, are usually considered private and involve a right to privacy. According to those uh, requiring a strong sense of the independence of cyberspace, all online contacts are considered private in an absolute way, uh, simply because of this imagined strange new world. <clears throat> and that there is uh, no way in which you could reasonably expect to walk down the street, uh, as it were, in a public and open way, um, on, you know, there's no parallel online, and, and yet still uh, entertain some, some measure of privacy. <clears throat> so Nussenbaum's uh, contextual privacy framework, I think, has a great deal of promise for understanding the paradoxes of privacy in public. In fact, she suggests that with adjustments and arrangements of the design of situations, we can basically have our cake and eat it too. She argues that uh, applying this mindset to conflicts can result in creative solutions, which is precisely what I'm arguing with with respect to uh, blockchain technologies, looking for these kinds of creative solutions. And the key feature of the contextual privacy framework is to understand how privacy operates within specific contexts, and then to evaluate how it breaks in other contexts. It is therefore normatively important to consider the specific context and to assess the ways that norms are contravened in this context. <clears throat> so a, a, a context is basically just a structured social setting characterized by canonical activities, roles, relationships, power structures, norms, rules, internal values. <clears throat> and so together these are uh, what she calls contextual values. And they're basically social and constantly changing. So I won't say too much more about the sort of specific way that these contextual values play out in Nissenbaum's account, but for, I want to uh, leave a little bit of time to kind of focus on the way that blockchain technologies might be able to help us out apply this sort of this design mindset that she's looking for to come up with these creative solutions. For blockchain technologies, I want to offer um, the admission that I think it's more productive to consider the range of blockchain the range of blockchain technologies here. Um, even when much of what makes, a block, makes up a blockchain uh, might be absent. <clears throat> and I, so I think there's lots to be considered in these sorts of cases. And in fact, these sort of promiscuous or impure blockchains are often um, little more than a, basically a distributed or decentralized ledger with some crypto built in. And so uh, anyone that's familiar with, with, with the world of blockchain right now will see that there's a lot of blockchains that um, you don't often even have blocks. Um, that is, they're not uh, mined in hash groups of transactions or even chains. Uh, I'm just thinking of one off the top of my head, um, uh, one called Guard Time, and they say, look, we have a blockchain solution, but it doesn't have blocks, it's not chains. <coughs> but despite this, um, I, I think these are kind of interesting accounts. <coughs> um, so case in point, uh, I was recently at the Intel headquarters in, uh, in Oregon, and speaking with a range of uh, large and small commercial actors interested in, in, in blockchain technologies. 
uh, where we discussed how blockchain technologies can be used to ensure a, the whole range of privacy and specifically focusing here on business cases. In this particular setting, given that most of the people in the room were uh, responsible for, for like enterprise solutions or looking to develop these kinds of solutions, they're actually more interested in business to business privacy. And here I think uh, privacy, uh, at least in the sense of constraint or restriction of information, offers, a, a, for them, it's a, a competitive advantage and it's absolutely critical. So we can, of course, think of basically the fintech solutions in which this kind of privacy might be necessary. And so likewise, Intel was interested in using blockchain technologies to ensure um, this kind of right kind of privacy or what is really actually kind of a control of information. Um, and they wanted to use it for things such as logistics or uh, for high value goods. <clears throat> and, I, I, and at the time, actually, there was this really interesting particular challenge they were, they were looking at. So basically, they were looking at ways in which you can track pallets of goods uh, using expensive GPS trackers. Um, but they needed these sort of really tight uh, constraints on who had access to this information. And uh, they needed this solution to sit between many proprietary um, enterprise resource management tools, basically, that interacted. And in this case, what they wanted was a kind of a, a secure, decentralized ledger, a, a, what sometimes is called a highly permissioned blockchain. So I think some will accuse these sort of promiscuous or impure systems as not really being worth the name of blockchain. But I actually celebrate the idea um, that we're experimenting with technologies that offer this new range of privacy configurations. And this is why I want to you know, draw your attention to these different kinds of blockchains here. Um, and, and again, they, they, I think, offer this opportunity to apply this kind of creative mindset that Nissenbaum thinks is so important. So these privacy configurations are potentially useful for both personal privacy um, of, the, of the kind of, uh, I was talking about at the start, as well as um, uh, the kinds of concerns for businesses and, and you know, people like enterprise, uh, you know, people like Intel who have these enterprise uh, questions as well. So my hope is that these configurations might offer some of the normative values that are contextually specific, um, that is models that make uh, sense not in terms of a, an ethereal cyberspace, but as an engaged social world, which includes the whole range of activities here exchange, commerce, and, of course, some sense of uh, personal privacy. So my specific suggestion is that we need to create the very least, uh, is to create, or at the very least, think about um, ways uh, of changing our narrative and to develop what I think is a kind of de-networked model for privacy-sensitive information flow. That is, by adding friction um, to making and, and making the transactions basically pure peer-to-peer, -peer. that is not peer-to-peer-to-peer -to -peer -to -peer and so on. And so we can start to envision an online world that carries some of the normative contextual values um, that we can basically make sense of as, as they mirror this prototypical case of public privacy, of, of walking down, of down the street, for instance. So um, basically we, we, we keep the good parts of online transactional behavior and information flow but change our narrative away from uh, this binary and, and maximal privacy model. And we'll regain the ability to design systems that are, in a sense, sort of purposefully leaky, but with, and here's the key point, with known 
uh, leaky context. In the same the same way that, so if you walk down the street, um, you're usually quite aware of uh, when, you know when, when your friend sees you or something like this. Um, but you're, or at the very least, you're sensitive to the fact that your friend might see you. So, what would this look like if we were if we harnessed blockchain technologies? And I don't actually have the answers, and that's not really my, my interest here. Um, my interest is to problematize the domain and to start to shift our narrative. And I see it as I see it, the main benefits we gain from um, this sort of uh, applying this idea of a, of a promiscuous blockchain, and that is the decentralized and uh, distributed nature, um, is that we can offer a, uh, a, a kind of a an identity management topology. <coughs> Um, as well as, we, I think we might also be able to leverage some of the concepts around uh, what are called blind signatures, which is very much in the spirit of uh, the original spirit of, of blockchains and, and Bitcoin. So I'll just briefly discuss these two angles as I see it, um, as the kind of core features of, of blockchains that can sort of be creatively leveraged um, to deploy a contextually relevant, a contextually relevant set of privacy norms. And so, my interest is to kind of is to, is to move some direction towards an actual um, set of technologies that we can sort of you know, talk about. So with respect to identity, the kind of identity management topology, um, I, I believe that blockchains create and preserve identities in this uh, sort of thick philosophical sense of the word, which therefore allow, um, sort of subsequently, allow real things to basically be managed and move to cloud. And so this is the kind of interest that um, you know, Intel has with respect to the, uh, excuse me, the world of like logistics. <clears throat> um, and I'll, 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 to kind of illustrate what I mean here, I'll use the example of, of Monograph. It's a fairly new um, rights management art sales platform. Uh, it's a sort of a blockchain uh, technology. So Monograph allows copyright holders to register and manage assets. Uh, which includes the ability to track changes to the asset, uh, set, set contractual uh, parameters on the object, and set basically manage the sale and distribution of an object's rights. So this is the, the piece of blockchain technology that they're that they're developing. So currently, the monograph platform only supports a, a small range of um, digital image formats, but in principle, it you know could be applied to any digital any digital file. <coughs> And basically, the rights are represented, the set of, of copyright rights, um, are represented by a digital fingerprint, and um, which has a, a, a rights contract hash with it, and it's subsequently stored on a decentralized ledger, a blockchain. Um, representations of the digital objects are stored, in fact, on the, on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain, and, associate, and the associated contractual data is uh, publicly visible and verifiable. However, the object data here is um, not stored on the blockchain, which means in principle the actual item uh, to be managed or sold using the, the monograph system here um, can be hidden from view while rights are managed publicly. So you see there's this, this, this uh, interesting play between um, some parts being public and some parts being private. <coughs> um, so. Therefore, I think there's quite a bit of uh, uh, copyright and sales flexibility built, built right in here into the Monograph platform, uh, including the ability to simply register a work, um, so that is establishing uh, its, its provenance, 
sell exclusive or limited editions. Um, remember, this is in the context of, an, of, of a product for art. And to, uh, you know, they also offer the ability to register kind of these Creative Commons rights and permitting resale and remixing. And, um, so one of the rather unique features of the Monograph platform is its ability to public track and verify sales um, and track the changes of the object or its licensing um, or even to, to resell the digital object. And so here is where I think just to kind of get to my, my key point here is that the very promise of reselling a digital object um, is the real reason behind Monograph. And, and that's what I think makes the system so unique um, and it's different from all the other kinds of content management uh, in distribution sales platforms that, that are uh, blockchain based. Um, and in an unusual twist, uh, one of the supposedly greatest features of digital computers and the internet, the ability to infinitely copy um, objects as though they were there were no material constraints, I think is actually here inverted. And so Monograph makes digital images unique and therefore precious and therefore valuable. And um, But what it, it's doing is it's establishing these new identities for digital objects as though they were material. So that's 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 their, their kind of their economic move here. And here uh, is a kind of configuration, in a sense of a sort of set of privacy contexts where I think we can start to get it our, our heads around this, this sense of, of it as though it's material. <clears throat> in the case of Monograph, the identity topology is predominantly couched in like property law and, and copyright, but um, I think this sense of controlling information is in fact actually applicable to questions of privacy as well. So Monograph is interesting because it's a fundamentally a system for establishing the identity of some digital object, and this is through the, the hash function, and then maintaining the technical and social infrastructure for uh, managing and controlling this identity. In this infrastructure, there's an array of what I call um, performance and compliance tests, um, uh, which I kind of cash out in this, this uh, philosophical sense of notation. I won't go into it here, but um, I think that's what kind of underlies this identity uh, functions that systems like blockchain, uh, blockchain systems are able to, to leverage. And of course, the system relies on legal rights to buttress questions of intellectual property and its ability to manage representations that are provided by um, this technological system of identities. So the other piece um, I'll just sort of kind of basically conclude with is the sense of blind signatures, and, uh, where I think this is another kind of set of technologies in which we can used to uh, put uh, in with this kind of creative thinking around, um, around privacy. <clears throat> Even before Bitcoin, there were many digital cash systems. Uh, one of the most famous was invented by David Chong. It was called DigiCash. And uh, it was, he used this new kind of public key cryptography that he invented called blind signatures. And there's a lot of crossover with blind signatures and systems of digital cash that later developed. Um, and uh, so for instance, the fact that transactions can be basically publicly verified in a secure fashion, that's an important quality for, for digital cash. So for blind signatures, the key feature is that a blind signature can be publicly verified against uh, the original unblinded message without revealing the identity of the original sender. So we can already start to see some of the interesting privacy implications 
of using things such as blind signatures. And so the, uh, these characteristics, um, as they're articulated in David Chong's 1982 paper, this goes back well before um, blockchain systems, are uh, one, the inability for third parties uh, to determine the payee time or amount of payments made by an individual. So he's talking specifically in the context of, of digital cash, but you can generalize that same, um, same sense. Two, the ability of individuals to provide proof of payment or to determine the identity of the payee. So an interesting uh, uh, quality for privacy here, this ability to determine the identity of the payee under particular um, circumstances. And then finally, just as a matter, it's not really relevant here, the ability to stop payment. But <clears throat> so the metaphor that Chom uses to explain digital signatures is voting um, using this carbon paper. And so I'll just uh, kind of run through how blind signatures work. It's, it's, it's a bit, it's kind of a twisted and goes around a lot, but um, just bear with me. So basically, if you take a, a special carbon paper lined envelope and you write a, a signature on the outside of the envelope, which leaves a carbon copy of the signature on the slip of paper on the inside of the envelope. Um, so then you can consider a situation, that's sort of how the rough, that's sort of the setup. You can then consider a situation facing um, uh, election by secret ballot. The electors are unable to, uh, to meet, to drop their ballots into a, a, a single hat. That would be your typical secret voting scheme. But each elector wants to keep their vote secret, but the elector also demands that they need to be able to verify that their vote is counted. So using these special envelopes with the um, carbon paper, um, <clears throat> each elector places a ballot slip uh, with their vote on it in the carbon-lined envelope. The elector places the, uh, the carbon paper envelope in an outer envelope, which is addressed to the trust, trustee, the person holding the, the, the vote. When the trustee receives the outer envelope, the trustee removes the inner carbon-lined envelope, signs the outside of the carbon-lined envelope, and returns the carbon-lined envelope in a new outside envelope. And then when the elector receives this returned uh, signed envelope. The elector removes the uh, outer envelope, checks the signature on the carbon-lined um, envelope, and mails the ballot to the trustee on the day of the election um, in a new uh, other envelope without a return address. When the trustee receives the ballots, they can put them all on public display, and they can be counted and checked. However, since the trustee never actually saw the ballot slips while signing them. The trustee does not have any way of identifying a particular um, ballot slip. So thus, the trustee cannot determine how anyone voted, but all the votes are public and authenticated. <clears throat> so this, uh, you know, admittedly very complicated uh, sort of description. Um, it does make one thing, I think, kind of clear. Blind signatures provide the ability to participate uh, without necessarily losing anonymity. But importantly, also enable you to basically prove your involvement. Um, and that is expose your privacy in contextually specific manners. And so that's why, one of the, that's why I think blind signatures offer kind of some of this interesting privacy implications. So let's end my discussion with a, a specific example um, about the ways that we can think creatively about using blockchain technologies harnessing the uh, specifics of this identity management topology I'm suggesting alongside 
um, some uh, particular notions of blind signatures. And in fact, I think we can, there's other kind of cryptographic authentication schemes that um, can get our, some of this particular interesting discussion going. <coughs> so for this specific example, I kind of think of it as a, a, a not quite candidate for the kinds of flexibility of privacy um, that I'm imagining. Um, but it's certainly an entry into this uh, blockchain-inspired creative thinking around privacy models. And so specifically, I'll consider um, MIT's chain anchor uh, uh, white paper. The interesting invention of chain anchor is that what they've done is they've added a, an identity layer on top of permissioned blockchains. And here I mean um, actual, like personally identifiable information. Since the context of chain anchor, what they, what they wanted to use it for is to establish uh, anti-money laundering and know your customer uh, regulatory compliance. So according to the white paper, they say, chain anchor adds an anonymous identity verification step such that anyone can read and verify transactions from the blockchain, but only anonymous verified identities um, can have transactions processed. So I won't go into the kind of uh, plumbing of chain anchor um, for the sake of time, but what's interesting to me is that, uh, depending on the mode or, or the use of, the, of chain anchor, users can, in fact, uh, prove their transactions, you know, that they made a transaction, as well as engage anonymously, or reveal their identities. Um, and so I think these three features alone offer a great deal of normative context for privacy, and offer a way to think about um, this idea of privacy in public in an online setting. So with this system, we have a world, or at least a, a kind of partial way, that we have some of the flexibility, um, uh, some, rather, some more flexibility than we have in the kind of sense of absolute privacy I uh, mentioned at the beginning about that sort of, this sort of you know, for instance, the Apple versus uh, FBI case. And we have a retention, at least in part, of some of the contextual norms um, that are important to the social offline uh, sense of being. Specifically, there it's used for um, financial regulation, but I think these kinds of norms can be applicable in other, uh, other privacy settings. And more than this specific example, however, we also have um, consideration of the ways in which we can, uh, I think, hopefully change some of the narrative and reimagine how social properties can be engaged <coughs> online. And with that, that's all I have. Thank you.